Hello, 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 and welcome to the 52-week film project, week 21. Uh, we are here this week to talk about our second week spent at the London Film Festival. Uh, last week we hit you with part one of that, where we were reviewing Been So Long, a new Netflix musical film, and Aquarella, an absolutely bizarre water-based documentary. Um, we're here with some slightly more straightforward films in some ways this week. Um, uh, we're actually here with three films this week. We're going to be talking about Outlaw King, uh, the new Netflix film starring Chris, Pr- Chris Pine, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, amongst others. We're going to be talking about Dream Away, which is a surreal documentary about the resort-based area of Egypt called Sharm El Sheikh. And Will is going to be giving us a review of Sew the Winter to My Skin, of which I know absolutely nothing about. Um <laughs> How how are you doing this week, Will? How you... Yeah, not too bad, mate. It's been another fun week at the BFI, if I must, if I might say so myself. It's been absolutely exhausting, hasn't it? Like, don't get me wrong, it's been so so much fun going to see all of these showings. And like, when I went to Outlaw King with my friend Jack on, I think it was last Wednesday. It was the European premiere, and we didn't know, and we were literally sat watching the film next to and behind, like the main members of the cast like Chris Pine and his girlfriend were behind us David McKenzie was next to us all of Aaron Taylor Johnson's family were there it was a very cool very surreal experience but it's um I mean bloody hell it it does take it out of you doesn't it it really does yeah we we were we've been very lucky in that apart from uh, so the winter to my skin uh, we've had the the director or the cast come to each screening that we've been to, which is very exciting. It's an added bonus of doing the BFI, I suppose. It's that you see these people in real life. Um, I had a celebrity encounter yesterday, though, but it's not related to um, the BFI Film Festival. Oh, go um, on. What was it? Uh, well, it, so I was I, I did the um, London March yesterday. We're recording on Sunday. Um, the March about the people's vote. Um, I was part of the 670,000 people. Very exciting. Bloody hell. Is that I the know. biggest March London's ever seen? Uh, no, it was the second biggest launch, uh, March London's ever seen. The what first was, one was Yeah, Iraq. what was the biggest? Iraq in, oh, when was it? 2003, 2004? Uh, the Iraq marches. Um after there was a discovery of Saddam Hussein's known nuclear weapons. Um, but yes, I was walking around there and then just bump into Douglas Booth. Uh, the jaw... The, do, you remember, do you know who Douglas oh, Booth really? is? Oh, what, the guy that was in Loving Vincent? Yes, the guy who's got the extremely sexy jawline. Yeah, he's, he's pretty suave, isn't he? Yeah, and he was on the that, phone, he was oh, strutting. Sexy is massively debatable, mate. I think he's got quite the distinctive jawline, but for me he looks a bit like a cube. I can get why he looks like a cube because he does, but he but re, he had stubble this time, and so the cube was sort of softened by some stubble. It was nice. God, I sound like this podcast is just going to be me lusting over Douglas Booth. It's a disaster. <laughs> um, well, anyway, that was a yeah yeah great great little segue. Well, fun into um, but yeah no we've had uh, yeah we we've bumped into a lot of famous faces, haven't we? Yep. Mainly through the film festival: Daniel Kaluuya, Chris Pine, Annabelle Wallace, David McKenzie. Um, like you said, when we went to see Dream Away, um, even though it was a much smaller showing, it was part of the uh, festival's documentary selection. Uh, we really need to find out what won. I don't know whether they've announced the winners of Best Documentary at the London Film Festival Yeah, good yet. point. I, I don't know um, at all. Um, I'll, I'll have a Google. <laughs> yeah, no, the directors were there as well. And this was re- that was a particularly lovely experience because they came up to say a bit at the beginning about the film. And the Egyptian director of this this documentary, um, he, he said to the room that it, it was his first time he'd ever been to the UK. Yeah. Imagine, imagine 
if the first time you've ever come to the UK, you're coming to London to show off your feature length film. Yeah, it's the dream. That's amazing. Isn't it? That's so cool. What an amazing um, thing to do. But anyway, before we get into all of that, um, let's talk about the news of the week. Have you got anything interesting from this week in the movie world? No, I've got really three really boring news articles. Yeah, oh, mate, no. <laughs> same. I've got absolute shit. So we just, should we just ignore it? <laughs> yeah, it's over. Um, no, so I've got actually three very exciting news articles. Uh, the first one, uh, it's the new the new spider suit uh, from Spider-Man Far From Home has been announced. Um, the um, Tom Holland uh, shared a photo of Spider-Man standing next to Zendaya, who plays Mary Jane, with the caption, That's a wrap. So essentially, filmmaking is now done from Far From Home. It's the end footage. And then I think a day later, he debuted the costume on Jimmy Kimmel. It's quite cool. It's more red and black. It's kind of like what Captain America's costume changed to in the... Um, changed to in... Was it the Winter Soldier, the second one? Yes, it was the Winter Soldier. It's sort of more sleek. It's more sort of... Um, it looks more real instead of sort of more pop comic booky. Um, it's red and black. It's got very cool um, spider logo on it. Um, and then on Jimmy Kimmel, Tom Holland did a flip. Um, oh, and I did, love did it. I he's, could... he's such a dude, isn't he? Like I remember when he did that um, lip sync battle, and he did he did oh. Rih- he did Rihanna's umbrella, and it was just amazing. It's it's one of the best lip syncs I've ever well, seen. You know, Is it, yeah, you know you know the reason like his kind of come up to fame was he was in Billy Elliot the musical. Yeah, I yeah, think I he do. was. I think he was the leading role actually. Well, shall I tell? Um, have I told my story about Tom Holland on the on the podcast before? Oh, I don't think you have, mate. Go on. Um, well, not about necessarily about Tom Holland. So I was acting. Um, I was acting. That's a great way to start <laughs> <laughs> on Broadway. Um, yeah, no. Well, really not. Um, my first play at my secondary school was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and um, I played Wolf Two. Um, and the person who played <laughs> no Wolf Two had the only lines for a wolf because Wolf One died. And Wolf 2 was the person who went back to um, the, the Snow Queen or whatever her name is. Anyway, um, Wolf 1 was a, gu- was a guy and he was acting with me in a lot of plays. He did The Crucible with me, etc. Um, and he was a pretty good actor. I um, I really liked him. He was a nice guy. Um, I think we knew each other for about two years. Um, had a lot of banter. And then he, at going to sixth form, went to the Brit School, became friends with Tom Holland and now travels the world essentially as his entourage which is an amazing thing. So I just look at these Instagrams that he's done. He's just in LA. He's in both, I think he's in the event, both Avengers films and the Spider-Man Homecoming film. He just oh, lives the life. hold on. I, I remember this because I remember when we went to watch Avengers Infinity War, there's the bit where Spider-Man or Peter Parker gets introduced on the bus and all the kids are like freaking out seeing the spaceship from the side of the bus and he like sneaks out yes. um, the other side through the window. And you had like I thought you were having a fit in the cinema next to me because you you saw an old school friend of yours was one of the extras as one of the children in the bus yeah I know it was madness it was absolutely but, but madness. What, what really got me with that was all of the kids obviously I mean Tom Holland looks incredibly youthful um even though he's the same age as us like 21 22 uh, but all the other kids on the bus look really youthful as well so I was thinking imagine if you were the one that had gone to the Brit school and been Tom Holland's friend and like Tom tried to get you in as an extra in the scene of the school bus for the children. I mean, well, no offense, mate, but you do not look young enough to be on a school bus. No, I know. Well, I—that was all I was thinking in the film was, was that I I could be there if I'd gone to the Brit school. I could have made friends with Tom Holland and been there. But you're right. I would not look like a school child. I don't know. They could have cast me as like Tom Holland's uncle or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> his babysitter. Oh yeah. Oh no, I they couldn't cast me as Tom Holland's uncle because Tom, Tom Holland's uncle dies. That's the whole <laughs> of point of Spider-Man. <laughs> no, they really can't. That's a big role. That's I'm just upping myself. Anyway, you could play yeah, a so grave. Spider-Man's got a new suit. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, actually, only one quick thing on that before we move yep. on. Have you? They finished filming, right? And there's still so much speculation over whether Jake Gyllenhaal is the villain and whether the villain he's playing is Mysterio. Mm. I, for one, love Mysterio. I thought he was one of the most fascinating and satirical um, supervillains in the Spider-Man universe. Um, no one's confirmed it yet, but there's there's shots of like a final battle scene, uh, kind of like drone shots of them filming it, and it looks like it's Jake with like a purple cape, um, in like a green bodysuit. So here's to hoping that rumor is actually true, because I think that sh- I just think that's a fantastic casting. I think it's so interesting. Well, also Mysterio, I think he's got one of the best outfits and looks. Oh, he's of so many cool. Spider-Man villains. Yeah. I think probably second to Green Goblin. Um, yeah. It's just so, so, so cool. Um, I really want to watch Raimi's Spider-Man now um, again. I just, every time I have Spider-Man Homecoming or Far From Home news, I just want, I just want to watch one and two again. I actually, I actually saw the DVD trilogy in Sainsbury's this morning of all three, Spider-Man 1, 2 and 3 for two ninety nine, And for just pure nostalgia purposes, I was so tempted to buy it. And then I just thought, Jake, you fucking idiot. A, you've watched them about 15 times. And B, they're all on Netflix. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I had a little moment of, oh, but I, I kind of miss buying DVDs, you know? <laughs> yeah, DVDs were a thing that you used to you used to buy a lot of DVDs. Like my, DVDs were a thing. Will well, they Paxton, still are a thing, but like, there's so, there were, like, the amount of DVD collections that I had. Do you remember the, did you, did you ever have the James Bond DVDs that if you bought all of the James Bonds, you'd create 007? Oh, yeah, the, 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 the kind of DVD series that made an image if you stepped them all up next to each other. Yeah. Yeah, fucking wicked, man. Those are the days. Anyway, we're talking about right. what, like we're really old. Anyway, right. Spider Man has a new suit. Wait, of course, <laughs> Spider Man has a new suit. Um, more superhero news from the world of Netflix. <laughs> Classic roots. This is um, just a superhero film podcast now. It really is. Um, okay, so recent news. We didn't talk about it last week, but Iron Fist has not been renewed by Netflix. It's been cancelled after its second season. Bit of a shame. It didn't do as well as the other Marvel series. Well, its season one was kind of really badly reviewed, but season two just came out a month ago and has kind of, by and large, righted a lot of the wrongs for a lot of people and has actually turned into quite a good series. Still, they've decided to cancel it, which is a real shame. Even bigger shame is that on the day Daredevil season three came out a few days ago, they announced that they were going to be cancelling Luke Cage as well. Um, apparently this is because of creative differences and the inability to agree to terms for a third season. Um, there's been like a real kind of disappointment from fans on this. Um, and even the, I can't I think it's called Finn something, but the guy who plays Finn Iron Jones, Fist, or, yeah, Finn Jones, he, um, shared an Instagram of like, you know, they do this thing in like the Defenders or in those Marvel series where Iron Fist's hand is stopped by Luke Cage's hand and they're kind of like a little pair and they've been working on building up that duo for a while. And it's led to speculation that there might actually be a reason behind it and it might actually be because of a spin-off series. So essentially in comic book lore, uh, Power Man or Luke Cage and Iron Fist joined together to make a team called Heroes for Hire. Oh. Um, which I, I don't know I mean it's 
it's difficult. I think maybe it is just as black and white as the shows aren't getting very good ratings, so they're going to cancel them, and then we're not going to see anything more from them. Um, I personally thought Luke Cage season two started off really strong and then got really boring really quickly. Um, the only other news we've got on this is that Mar- uh, the Punisher and Jessica Jones are both safe for now. So the Punisher season two has just finished filming and is due out next year. And Jessica Jones season three is currently being filmed. So we're at least going to see those two seasons. Um, currently, there's no reports on whether Daredevil's going to get a fourth season. Um, I haven't really looked at what the reviews are like for season three. Um, I don't know whether it's doing well or not. But yeah, it's, it's a bit of a strange position, really, because I mean, they're kind of, kind of some of Netflix's title TV shows in many ways, but then maybe it's representing the fact that Netflix is now becoming so gargantuan and bringing out so many new things in the lineup, probably things we don't even know about, that means they don't feel like they really need it anymore. Mm. It, it definitely shows Netflix being much more cutthroat than we've seen them before. Like, they're producing, you know, there's always that joke of like Netflix will just throw money at fucking anything. Um, and that's true. And that's been quite a good business model for their rapid growth. But maybe we're seeing a change towards being more selective in their content and them actually really kind of analysing their ratings and their viewership for shows. And maybe they've got like a new standard or a new set of criteria based on their trailblazing TV series that are coming out at the moment. Maybe shows we think are probably pulling in big numbers just aren't. And therefore, even if they have a, like a big fan base, they're not going to keep them going. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I don't understand why they've cancelled Iron Fist and Luke Cage too much because comic, in terms of ratings, if they, if, if you're looking at that as a factor, surely Iron Fist and Luke Cage, even though the ratings may have not been as good as, let's say, Jessica Jones, Daredevil, or maybe Cloak and Dagger. Oh, that's Amazon. Cloaking Dagger, Dagger is Amazon. Um, but even still, like it's still a superhero big franchise on Netflix when they're trying to proliferate more. Surely they would have kept those things and maybe taken off some of the ne- some of the Netflix original content that wasn't doing well, rather than cancelling two superhero ones. Because superhero superhero things always do well in terms of ratings wise. They they always because that's the culture at the moment. We're buying into this Marvel cinematic superhero world, and also if if in my personal opinion, if you're going to cancel two Marvel TV shows, cancel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and um, Agent Carter. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think there's just some boring superhero TV shows out there. And I didn't think that Luke Cage and Iron Fist were going to be the first ones to go. Mm. But anyway, yeah, that's that. What's your what's your next bit of news? Um, this new bit of news is a bit bizarre because I had no idea it was happening. Did you know there's going to be a, a, a musical film of Cats? No, I didn't. I, I, and and I say no, I didn't. Um, not in a way of, ooh, I'm interested, in a way more of, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm pretty much the same. But I've, I've just been looking at the cast list and two people have been announced recently in the last couple of days. And it's just the most bizarre cast list I've ever seen. It's, it's, so, Halle, Be- it's Halle Berry reprising her role as Catwoman. <laughs> oh my God, could you imagine? It'd be great. So um, it's directed by Tom Hooper, who did the um, Les Mis um, film. Uh, it's the screenplay is by Lee Hall, who um, wrote the Billy Elliot film uh, in 2000, which is which is a fantastic film. So I'm excited about that. Uh, in the cast, we have Idris Elba as McCavity. 
Judy Dench as old Deuteronomy. Um, now, Judy Dench was supposed... This is an interesting fact, which I learned today. Judy Dench was supposed to be the first... Uh, the, the the star of Cats, um, who sang Memory, which is the, essentially the song that I know from Cats. Um, but she, a week before the show was a big due to start, she uh, broke her leg and couldn't be in the show. So that's why Elaine Page got it. And then that launched Elaine Page's career. Um, so she's oh, been right. given a... Yeah, interesting. Um, so she's been given the character of Old Deuteronomy, who is a, a male in the musical so i think they're genders flipping that uh jennifer hudson is grizabella who sings memory uh ian mckellen is gus the theater cat taylor swift is an un and, and james corden are sort of unknown characters they're too decided oh, of course she fucking had to get james bloody corden in there i know i know it's it's it, yeah it's any essentially like pe- person who can sing in hollywood taylor swift i don't think i've ever seen act i'm not sure i do want to see act i kind of want to see her fail <laughs> no, but the thing is, if Taylor in like a, in fails, like a Cara Delevingne Suicide Squad kind of way, yeah, but then it drags the whole project down. I don't want Ian McKellen and Idris to be tarnished by Taylor. I, I mean, it, uh, Idris takes fucking anything at the moment, doesn't he? Mm. That's my problem with him. I like him a lot as a personality, and I think he's really good at acting in some things. But I think he needs to be more selective. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, have you? Cats the musical for me doesn't really have a plot. It's just an introduction to lots of different cats. Yeah. So there's a cat that does this. There's a cat that does that. Um, James Corden I think might be playing Buster for Jones, which is the fat Mayfair cat, yeah. which is just going to be a bit insufferable, I think. Unsurprising. And it'll be interesting to see how they do the dancing because Cats is a musical where it's essentially it's a, it's essentially an avant-garde dance piece with some okay songs. That's what yeah. Cats is about. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens happens with that. I am not holding out too many hopes for this being great. I tell you what, neither am I. And just thinking about it, the, I've I've just decided on the spot that the day I hang up my hat and leave the film world for good will be the day James Corden is cast in an inevitable Alice in Wonderland remake as the Cheshire Cat. Oh gosh. Oh, I but think they had Stephen I, Fry do it last time. He was I, so I, good. I think that will be the day that cinema dies. <laughs> Is that the day that if, if we're at forty week forty eight of our podcast and that happens, I just we're not, not we're not making it to fifty two. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but on the positive side, Spider Man has a new suit. Yeah, we get, we always have to remember that. <laughs> um, my next bit of news is actually quite funny. So I I just had a bit of relatively boring news. And then saw a link to slightly more exciting news on my laptop. So coming at you live with a brand new update. Um, HBO has produced a Watchmen TV show. I had no idea this was happening. And being a relatively big fan of the original Watchmen graphic novel. And like a fairly reasonable fan of the Watchmen movie that they made. Um, this is news to me and it shouldn't be. But anyway, this is coming out in 2019. And uh, they've kind of they've just released kind of a, a fifteen second kind of first look at a new character for the series, um, which looks like a police officer who has some sort of superpowers. Now it's meant to kind of be following the where the comic story has gone recently, um, and Watchmen has actually moved as a comic series. It's moved to DC, um, and DC have kind of taken up the reins from I think Dark Horse. I can't remember. Um, and so this series is kind of 
kind of draw parallels from what's going on in the comic book arc at the moment um, and tell it on the TV screen. Um, That'd be awesome. For any Watchmen fans out there, that uh, sounds pretty interesting. Well, Watchmen was the, one of the first graphic novels that I... I think I read it, read it a bit later, as you do. You sort of read it in... I, I think I read it sort of 14, 15. And the comic itself is so dense and got so much political intrigue and um, really scary emotional subject matter. So I'm really excited to see that fleshed out in a TV show rather than a film. I think that'd be really, really interesting to see the nuances of the different characters. And yeah, HBO, when... if they do something Westworldy or Game of Thronesy with it... That'd be quite cool. Maybe not Game of Thronesy, but like what early Game of Thronesy in terms of the medieval storylines, but mainly about the characters. Um, that will be very exciting to see. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think you're right as well. The graphic novel is so dense, and they struggled to get all of that subject matter into a two and a half hour film. So um, yeah, I think a TV show is the right way to go with it if they're going to carry on expanding the universe. Um, is Zack Snyder in any way attached? Uh, no, not sure. Okay. Well, I just, I just holding out hope that he's not because I loved the first film. I thought it was a really good film, but I don't want him to do a um, Justice League or a yeah, um, I agree. Justice. Um, what's your third... um? Yes. Yeah. What's your next bit? Um, guess what, Jake? I've got more superhero news. Uh, <laughs> Go on. <laughs> um, so we have the there is a Flash film coming out eventually. It's part of the DC's plan, um, and it's been delayed again. Which is the, Ez, the Ezra Miller version. The Ezra of the Flash. Miller Flash film. Um, there's, I don't. It's, I think it's called Flashpoint. Um, which oh, so Flash... is it? Is it taking on the the Flashpoint graphic novel? Is that the point of the film? I think so. I'm not fully sh- sure. I hope it. I hope it does because the Flashpoint graphic yeah, novel same. is fantastic. But like what that what DC did with Dawn of Justice, where they sort of abridged the um, the death of Superman comic comic arc story. In quite in sort of bastardized it. I hope they don't do this with the Flashpoint storyline. Yeah. Because that's got so much nuance and so many introductions to old characters that it might be quite difficult to do. Anyway, um, it was it's been in sort of product post uh, production since not post production production since um, 2016. Um, it, the director was going to be Rick Fumiyua. 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 Not, not, not Kari Fukunaga. No, which is My why I'm really confused director. with the name, um, <laughs> because I'm, I, I don't know, I'm just terrible at names, uh, who was the director of Dope, and he left the film in 2016 with creative oh, differences. Oh, I love Dope. Dope's a great movie. Yeah, I know. I'm quite upset that it, it, like, it hasn't happened. Uh, so the new director of the film Games Night, which is, I think, coming out sometime this year, or has come out, uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein are directing. Um, it's been announced the script has not been finished. So the, sh- the film will not be able to start shooting until March. But they've screwed it up because w- what happens in March is that Ezra Miller goes off to film Fantastic Beasts, the third part. Oh, for God's sake. So th- then by the time that's finished, that'll be July, August, maybe even late- later in 2019, which will mean the film will come out around about in 2021. So from a film that was probably going to come out in the summer after Aquaman to now, it's, it's they've, they've, they've fucked it. They have just fucked it. And I don't swear a lot on this podcast, but they have really screwed this up. Yeah, man. But this is what happens when DC try and release all these movies without a connected universe. Exactly. They have to think. They have. To, they they haven't got. Well, I don't know if they've not got much of a plan because Wonder Woman I thought was a good film, and I'm excited for the Aquaman film, and these might these standalones might be quite good, especially <coughs> with Suicide Squad. Weirdly, I weirdly I'm excited about the Aquaman film. 
I um I saw a picture the other day of William Defoe riding a shark, and I just um yeah I was sold. <laughs> do you remember when we do you remember when we talked about it about maybe like six seven episodes ago and we were talking about the fact that apparently there's like uh, seahorses like fully armored seahorses riding into battle at one point. Mm, yes. Like, and I think I said something like I will go and see the film just to watch those seahorses. Well, now from the trailer you can see a giant crab and Willem Dafoe riding a shark. So I now have three reasons to go and see this film. Yeah, definitely. And also, uh, Willem Dafoe riding a shark is probably better than the entirety of the Meg. Yeah, I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. It's probably better than, <laughs> probably better than Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom as well. Hey! Uh, right, anyway, my last bit of news before we get on to these uh, London Film Festival reviews is quite cool. Um, a Quiet Place 2 is definitely happening. Uh, it, yeah, it's slated for a May 2020 release. Um, and John Krasinski is writing the script. So ah. there's no casting or anything. Apparently, John Krasinski gave, like, basically told the studio, like, I had a little idea, but, you know, I don't think I can flesh it out into a full story. So you guys find a new director, find a new writer, do whatever you want to do with it. Um, and then he told his little idea to the executive producers, and they were like, can you think about this for a little bit longer and come back to us with something more because we really like it and we want we we feel like you represent kind of like the the branding of this film and what it represents so i basically it sounds like whether he's going to be acting in it or not they really really want him to push forward with writing the script for the sequel which is what he said he's doing interesting it'll be nice nice to see a quiet place too i think that'd be very exciting yeah i think i think They'll need to tread carefully, um, but I think yeah, I do. I trust him. I think if he's come up with such an interesting idea for the first film and fleshed it all out and acted and directed, then I think he's probably come up with something reasonably entertaining for the second one. I just of all the films, I didn't think this was the one that would have like sequel news this set in stone this quickly. I mean, when mm. did it come out? April. Yeah, yeah. And it's- and it is it is by and large a standalone film. Like it doesn't set up a sequel in anyway really i hope what they do is like the walking dead and fear the walking dead as they have another the following another family um in uh, but also with the same problem but i think that'd be a really interesting nuance to do and just sort of switch the family but i don't know maybe you want to see the resolution of amy but emily blunt's character um and john Chris- is john Korinsky in the film yeah he john is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um i don't know i don't know i'm excited for it no matter what mm. Right, well, anyway, on to the reviews. So, first up, we need to discuss Outlaw King. Now, Outlaw King, uh, you didn't, you were, unfortunately, you didn't come and watch World, did you? So, it will be me kind of giving my thoughts on this, and you kind of like, any questions you've got, give me a shout, because I know you're quite interested in this film and watching Definitely. it when it comes out on Netflix. Well, it's my Scottish blood, mate. <laughs> yeah, the Glaswegian in you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Outlaw King is a new film from director David McKenzie. Um, who I cannot remember. I knew what he did like 15 minutes ago, and now I've completely forgotten. Um, <laughs> he ah, that was what he did. So he previously worked with Chris Pine, who is the star of Outlaw King on Hell or High Water, um, a couple of years ago. And I think this was kind of around. They, they said that when the director and the actors came up on stage before the showing at this premiere we were at, 
um, they made it very clear that this film had been in the making or been in development for about eight or nine years. So it's quite clear that in 2016, when they were working on Hell or High Water, David McKenzie was like, Chris, I've got this project. It's gathering some steam. You know, will you, like, will you join us on it? And uh, it's a good thing that he did because Outlaw King, the film centres around um, Robert the Bruce, the Scottish king who rebelled against the English and took back his land. Um, it kind of runs in the same kind of timeline as Braveheart does. Um, so Robert the Bruce, the, the real king of Scotland, was born um, 11th of July, 1274, and then died uh, 7th of June, 1329. Um, was he around about 60 then? He was 54 when he died, mate. But I feel like that's probably quite good for... I was going to say, that is, living, that is living a good in age. The, living in the 1300s. Exactly. Um, this film is very kind of... Um, in the way it's shot, it, it, it's a classic kind of historical epic. It's very, very beautiful. They focus on vast landscapes and they try very hard to do kind of like... They try very hard not to make it choppy. Um, they try to do like long camera takes, um, kind of how we were talking about with Aquarella last week. The, that whole mm. the state of cinema and how every all the edits are really choppy now. Outlaw King makes a very clear decision to try and whether they are actually one take or whether it's a bit of camera trickery, they try very hard to make it look as if you're following one scene at many points in the film. I'd say maybe most of the film. Um, the opening sequence, for example, is is just phenomenal. It's like um, Robert the Bruce is kind of coming to swear kind of fealty to the King of England, who, another excellent casting, is the guy who plays Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones. So if you miss a bit of Stannis, like, this is another reason to watch it. It's great. You're watching... I've not seen the actor who plays Stannis in anything recently, and he's great. No, he is. He's really, really good. And he plays a really good um, king who's got a bit of a douchebag son who's trying to impress him um, and who kind of knows he's getting on a bit and knows that Robert is his better in many ways in this kind of cat and mouse game they're playing. Um, but is just still kind of trying to do everything he can to maintain control of his empire. Um, he's great, but this this opening sequence is essentially Chris Pine coming to him and kind of swearing loyalty, um, and then this is you know this is surrendering. This is a real defeat for the Scottish, um, and then it kind of like he the camera follows Chris Pine basically for about ten minutes, where he like then goes outside to try and like just get away from it all, and he's followed by the king's son who challenges him to a duel in the mud. And then after that, the king then um, brings them all back out through another way. And so you follow all the kind of ensemble cast, come back out to a new area that you haven't seen yet, where they've got this giant boulder type thing in this like wooden catapult. And they all kind of like, all the Scottish kind of watch very somber as the king like cuts this rope and this flaming boulder like like it's really impressive the way it's shot i can't really explain it but like watching it on a big screen with sound like surround sound it was really intense and this boulder like gets flung at this scottish castle that they've just laid siege to and it smashes into the sign it's burning and all the english are cheering and the scottish are kind of there sort of just taking their licks and um 
it it really sets the scene of like the film starts and Robert the Bruce is at his lowest fucking point. He's incredibly fucked off that him and his his father, uh, the King of Scotland, um, have had to kind of surrender, and it it builds from there. And this is a real kind of rebel story. You know, it's in the name Outlaw King. It's it's a ragtag bunch of Scottish men um, who. <laughs> <laughs> who who try to rally the troops um with a real lack of success um but then push back against the english um it's not getting the best reviews and i've been a bit i've been reading some of them and i'm a bit perplexed by it i think it's very well shot it does it it like one thing i really liked about it as a historical film is it tries to be as like close to the facts as possible while also providing an entertaining package and it is two hours 20 minutes long but it for me it didn't feel like that and i think a lot a big reason why it didn't feel like that for me was because it doesn't feel like a prestige piece it Mm. avoid it avoids grandstanding for most of it like when the scottish have like their successes like it's not really like overdone and like we're amazing and go scotland it's very kind of muted like we've we've done it we've we've you know we may have won a battle but we haven't won the war yet kind of thing um chris pine is a very i i don't really know how i feel about him as an actor in general i don't i don't really watch him in a lot of things but um he's incredibly likable he's incredibly charming while also being kind of quite a muted reserved character like he isn't a braggadocious fit like guy at all or the character he's very kind of he takes things in and he leads by example and it's um it's very well done um it's very enjoyable i think it's not afraid to be funny either which i think is really nice i think somewhere along the line with historical epics people forgot that you know even if it was the 1300s they were still making jokes they were still taking the piss out of each other and you know finding things funny um like there's this there's this great bit where they're about to have a battle with the English, and the king's son, who's just that classic kind of spoiled brat narrative, trying to impress his father, but just being a bit of a buffoon, he rides up to where the, like the border of the Scottish area, and Aaron Taylor Johnson, the guy from Kickass, who uh, plays this absolute fucking nutter Glaswegian guy, whose whole farm has been taken by the English. And so he sides with Robert the Bruce because he just wants to reclaim his la- his father's land. He's just an absolute maniac. He's one of the most interesting part- characters in the film. But he he rides up, literally on his own, to like 200 Englishmen led by this king's son. And he throws down the gauntlet, as it, as it were. He throws down a glove to say, you know, we'll fight, like, we'll fight you tomorrow morning or whatever. And then like screams in their faces and then like rides off. And the Brit, the king, the king's son says something like, "Oh God, I fucking hate Scottish people," or something <laughs> like that. And and the room erupted. Like there is, there is just there is genuinely funny moments in this film, and I think that made it feel. Um, it it made the time pass a lot quicker than like respective historical films of that same length would be. Amazing. 
Well, is the questions I suppose I have is that how real did the fight sequences happen? Were the, were the fight sequences um, quite staged, or did they look like it was a real um, a real medieval battle? Because you were saying about the sort of one take things, was was it taking you from this perspective um, in the big battle sequences of one person? Honestly, there was some very impressive choreography. I think it it did these really cool shots in like maybe some of the bigger fight scenes where like it would be following the camera would be following one character, and then maybe you're looking at them face on, and they'd like you know fighting with a few people and pushing their way through a crowd, and then they get like absolutely ransacked by some guy. They they just get decked, and then as they're getting decked out of the camera, the camera turns a bit to another one of the main characters who's fighting a couple of meters away, and it keeps like it's almost like a pass the parcel style cinematography where you're it's not um, chopping and changing, but you're getting a chance in maybe like a minute to see like four of the different characters and what's going on with each of them in close proximity to each other. Um, right, okay. It also, it does stuff. This film, a lot of it involves horses. A lot of it is um, shot on horseback and they, they made a point in the premiere that you know it took them weeks to get up to a level of um, really being efficient enough to like ride a horse galloping um, at a load of other actors while swinging a sword over their head kind of thing like that's you know it's fucking difficult like I've mm. ridden a horse and I find it bloody hard to just trot along holding on to reins um, <laughs> I mean I've been on one horse in my life and it's bucked me off immediately <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's bloody difficult yeah and, I say um, horse pony but, but, but what was more impressive or, or even kind of like quite terrifying actually um, this is this is going way way in, off off course for a minute but like in, in psychology um, obviously, there's one of the most enigmatic or divisive figures or fathers of psychology is Sigmund Freud. And Freud talks about the whole Oedipus complex and like the origin of fear and how like maybe one kind of traumatic event can change like, you know, how a child or a person feels. And he kind of, um, when investigating a child who he claimed had the Oedipus complex, so was kind of sexually infatuated with his mother, uh, he claimed that he traced that kind of the origin of that back to when he saw this boy saw a, a horse carriage crash on the side of a street and he, he saw the horse kind of spasm out and die in quite an intense way like it's it's you know i don't know if you've ever seen i worked on a farm for years i don't know if you've ever seen a horse fall over it's it's fucking terrifying mm. um it, it it's just a very unnatural thing um and you look at it and it's it's scary um it's kind of different to maybe if you saw a person fall over in a high street because you're kind of used to watching people falling over you've fallen over it's not quite the same um but this film has bits in it where the horses are involved where they're like falling down onto the ground or being caught on traps and things and I, I it, it was really scary really really affecting I don't know if it was for anyone else in the screening but for me I looked at it and I thought fuck like I don't know how they filmed that um, but it's 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 terrifying um, and uh, for me that was just one of the elements that really helped kind of add to the authenticity of like yeah well this is what it this is exactly what it would fucking be like if a thousand people charged their horses into spikes and men with swords, you know? And mm. I, I don't I don't feel like many big battle sequences have given me that same kind of grit. Yeah. Uh, so for that reason I thought it yeah, I thought it was phenomenal. I thought it was really impressive. Um 
I'm just looking on uh, Robert the Bruce's Wikipedia page, um, as you do, and I and I've noticed that he has two spouses, which is odd in the 1200s, 1300s. Elizabeth is is Isabella of Mar and Elizabeth de Burr. Um, yeah. Does it fo- does the film follow a kind of love story or an idea about the the divorce or spouse things, and does it get in the way or does it augment the plot? It does no. So um, I I don't know if it's explained on the Wikipedia page, but essentially what happened is Robert the Bruce had a daughter by his first wife who died. Um, he was widowed, and then during the kind of swearing loyalty to the English crown, they arranged an English wife for him, who is ah, Elizabeth Elizabeth okay. de Burr, who's played by Florence Pugh, who I I wasn't really aware of um, before watching this movie last week, but now I've kind of noticed seems to be everywhere. Like she's a rising star. Um, yes, it, like there is quite a sweet love story in this. I don't know whether the actual Robert the Bruce like marriage was romantic at all but it's kind of it's an arranged marriage and it does kind of quite he's a very noble man or he's portrayed to be and so like they're wed and they kind of like neither of them really want it but they're not like trying to make it work they're sort of like sat there at their like banquet after their wedding and they're kind of both joking about how bollocks the whole thing is and then like they're then like told to retire to their chambers basically so that they can like consummate the marriage and they're kind of like their clothes are taken off for them by servants or whatever and then they're left alone in the room and Chris Pine's like all right see you later and like gets up and like goes to his own chambers and you can tell that that's like like this wave of relief washes over Elizabeth de Burgh she's like oh thank god like you know I didn't want to have to there's too much pressure and he's kind of alleviating it and what kind of happens through the film without spoiling it is they actually they become united and they kind of become married on their own terms really mm. um once they've kind of proven each other proven themselves to each other and it's you know it's, it's quite a sweet it's quite a sweet story yeah, it's nice good what would you rate it if you were having to rate it um i i tell you what i'd give it a 7.5 i think it's Bam. um it, it's really well shot i think it's really interesting i think it may be a bit of a slog if you're just watching it on a tv um and maybe you know you sat there on your phone or you sat there with family who are talking and you're not really paying attention i think when you're there it's so hard when you're at the london film festival because you're essentially watching these films on the best cinema screen possible with an ridiculously immersive surround sound system so considering this is a netflix release and it comes out on november 9th um for anyone who's interested i think I don't know whether it will be as popular. Like, I don't know whether people will feel the same feelings that I had for it when they watch it on their home TV screen. I think it's a real shame that this hasn't got a theatrical release because mm. it is a it, it's a cinema film, one hundred percent. Interesting. You you want to see this on the biggest screen possible, um, but I know I think I think it was really good. I think it's really well choreographed. You've got some really excellent actors in there, as I said. I mean, you've got James Cosmo who's playing. Um, the king of scotland in the first kind of third of the film inevitably he passes away um but james cosmo is a really old really really revered actor who was in the original braveheart film like 25 years ago so it's really cool to see someone and he's a scottish guy so it's really cool to see someone who was kind of responsible for kind of pushing scotland out there into the open and their kind of like their history um, doing that once again for a whole new generation. Mm, definitely. Um, but yeah, no, 7.5. Awesome. 
Well, I well that's I need to see that film. Very very exciting. Um, I I I suppose with my Scottish blood, I should also see that film. Do you want me to talk about So the Winter to My Skin? The very different vibe of a film. Yeah, go on then, mate. Yeah, do that. Do that first, then we'll wrap up with Dream Away that we both indeed. Saw. Um, so the Winter to My Skin. Uh, it's directed by Jamil Xt Quebeca, um and written by the same guy as well. Um, the cinematography and the music is by Jonathan Covell and the music by Bram de Troyes. Um, it's based on the true story of um, the, a man called John Capé, who was kind of known as South Africa's Robin Hood in the 1950s. He used to steal um, an, an outrageous amount of things from local farms, um, specifically in the film, but not specifically in the real in real life, um, from the Botha farm. Um, now, he was... He was kind of known as a bit of a legend and a myth. Um, it was said that he'd stolen about a hundred sheep. Um, it said he said that he'd um, like he, he said that he'd sort of stolen gold and silver. Um, in the film, there's a scene where he has this cave, which is his hideout, and his cave is just full of um, paintings and um, rare pieces of art that he's stolen from his sort of white um, apartheid. Um, neighbors essentially um the film itself um is set it's such it's a delinear timeline so it starts with him being sentenced to being guilty at the beginning of the film it then goes on to um it then goes on to showing his friends and family disperse and one of his like cohorts being killed quite violently and then you have the story of what happens from lots of different people's point of view they do this really clever thing of um of signposting when it's going into a memory by sort of fading in on the person's face but um so to change the linear nature of the, the timeline as the film goes on we have um a guy called um simon poltergreif who is re who is was a sergeant in the original story, and he's the last man before um, Kepe was found and killed um, in 1952. Um, he was sentenced to death. Um, he was the last person who spoke to him, and that's <coughs> the details of that conversation is never known. Um, in the film, he plays a sort of journalist in um, South Africa who is kind of talking about the racism and talking about the problems with the police and wanting to know the myth behind the the legend of kepe um the film is really beautiful it's shot um very cinematically and it kind of takes the role of it is kind of less of a exposition film um about the sort of nature of racism etc and more as a sort of brutalistic thriller it's kind of got all the subject matter of um like a 12 years a slave in terms of the racial aspect obviously obviously 12 years a slave is a, in a different time frame and different examples of racism but it really does have a strong forefront of racism and you see it throughout the film but what is more telling is that it's a thriller film there is very little dialogue in fact i think the the first and only bits of dialogue are in the early parts of the film when he's talking about a sentence everything else is done by acting and by movement and by soundtrack the score has got a mix of these sort of germanic african songs and african jazz that is of of the of the contextual time period um and that builds the thriller nature of the story kind of in a it feels like a mix between the style of dunkirk soundtrack to amplify the thriller 
and Game of Thrones as actual um, actual soundtrack. It is really, really, really wonderful. Um, the acting cast is fantastic. Um, the guy who plays John Cape, um, Ezra Mabenga, Mabengan Geza, I can never get it right. Um, he is fantastic. He brings a real emotional intensity um, to the role. There is another guy called um, Zol Zolissa Zab Zab oh. Zoliska Agzalavu, uh, and he plays Black Wyatt Arp, who is a black policeman um, charged with um, trying to find Kepe, and he is terrifying absolutely scary the first scene is where him shooting one of the key re ringleaders as i've mentioned and he has a way of smoking a cigarette that makes you really really on edge and you don't know exactly what his motives are you don't know what he's doing um why he's aligning himself with a lot of the white farmers who are on this manhunt to find this guy but he's genuinely quite scary he seems like he's got a vengeance for um not just Kepe, but a lot of the black people in the town townships um, that Kepe tries to save. Um, you also have um, the female role of Golden Eyes, um, played by Candice McClure. Um, she is his wife, who he tries to. Uh, no, he is his. Um, she's being proposed to at the beginning of the film and it's apparently implied that John Kepe has a couple of kids with her but because of John Kepe's lifestyle they choose to be apart and they have a really tense difficult relationship which I think is exemplified it's this this idea of in in South Africa in the 1950s the woman stayed home and looked after the children while John Kepe can be outrageous as possible and it really creates a tension and a divide between the two characters that I think is really really well managed um I do think that a couple of times in the story I wanted a bit more exposition I want especially within Goldeneye's character because it sometimes felt that Goldeneye's it, fe it felt like I didn't really understand fully her motivations. I understood the general motivation of he's being a crazy idiot and might get himself killed and she's left at home to look after the children. Um, but it didn't really flesh out any of that and that may be because there was so little dialogue to, f to flesh out these things. Um, the film shows this sort of re magical realism, which I've never seen before. It's the film's first shot is of um, John Kepe trying to be found and um and by by the search party and he's sort of crawling out the reeds like a animal or like a lion or something like that and it's it's very 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 scary um and then you see that same scene played out from john kepe's perspective later on and he's a mess and you do, and he's um very very human and it takes the whole film to change the man from myth to man at the end of the film um I loved it. I thought it was an absolutely fantastic film. I think that it's. I think that it. We. If you are going to watch this film, watch it twice. There are so many things you need to pick up. So many little details that are so impressive that I think it would be so much better and more rewarding on a second viewing. Because sometimes the film can leave you in a place of, okay, what's happening? Where I'm a bit confused. Um, but generally, in terms of the cinematography, in terms of the action sequences, in terms of the vast scope of the music and the landscapes that are shown. It's a really beautiful, measured film. Wow. That was a great review, man. Thanks, darling. No, really, really. <laughs> um, I, I don't really know if I have any questions off the back of that. I think um, it, it, 
I, what got me when I watched the trailer was just how um, how beautiful it looked, and that was the reason why we 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 kind of decided we were well at least one of us was going to go see it in the first place. Mm. And I think yeah, it sounds. I, I was fascinated by the way you described it as a brutalist thriller. Um, makes it sound really dark and gritty when kind of lots of the kind of tra- well, lots of the trailer for me was quite kind of bright and um, like you say, kind of like those landscape shots. I think it's really interesting because so many kind of dark thrillers, you feel like they have to have such moody environments the whole way through. And this clearly doesn't have to feel like it has to do that the whole way through. Mm. Yeah, they, they get the comedic tone right. So there is a couple, there's no characters played just for laughs what you have is characters that are all fully realised, even though they don't talk. Um, but some characters can do stupid things and some some moments are really, really quite funny. Um, a lot of the sort of middle sequences where the chase is happening and it's kind of like, is are they going to catch him? Are they not? And it's kind of it's kind of hijinky in that bit. But then that's also balanced out by the same characters who are doing sort of far, almost farcical sort of slapstick falling over and etc. in the middle period. Um, the guy who does that in the first scene, uh, they the um, white um, the white people in the township go in um, with the police and the army to sort of clear out a township that needs to be evicted and it's going to be built over. And there is a scene where they essentially have a massive fight between black and white. And um, the guy who plays um, Fearless the Rabble Rouser, that's a real name for a real character. Fearless um, the Rabble Rouser, brilliant. Um, and he is whipping... Um, one of the um, white army sergeants um, to, with a with a like a proper horsewhip, and you see every single strike, and you see every single gash in this guy's face. It's really brutal. It's so hard to watch. You feel a what, bit. What sick. age rating is this film? Is it an eighteen? I think it, I think actually it's a fifteen, um, which surprised me um, because there's because what what you have is that yes, the violence is really really strong. But you don't have. There's no swearing. There's no swearing because there's no dialogue. There's no sex at all. There's, like there is a there is a, a quote unquote sex scene, but it doesn't get shown. It's not the important bit part of it. Um, there's no brutalistic shots, and the, and even though the whipping se- scenes, it's kind of like Passion of the Christ in a way. Like the right. scene, the, the the scenes are so brutal. Um, but they don't have anything that rude to back it up with. It might be an eighteen. I'm pretty sure it's a fifteen. Do you think um, there's any? Do you think there's any? Um, if it hasn't been done already, um, any potential for adapting this as, into a stage play? I think it'd be beautiful as a stage play. It's, yeah, um, it would be. It would be interesting to see how they do the cinematography because that's such a key part of the film. Is going all going over these vistas and landscapes and different places. He's in. He's in the fields. Then he's in on the mountains. Then he's in the woods. Then he's in by the lakes and the streams to try and escape from um, from the people trying to catch him. Um, and that's such a key part of it. So, but it would be really interesting to see a stage adaption, um, especially without the dialogue. The di- the dialogue what got in the way a lot of the times, um, and it was mainly to do with the people's face facial expressions. It was just it was just so so good. Um, in terms of rating, I would also give it a seven point five. I think it's fantastic. I think it's beautiful. I do think that if I watched the film again, I probably would give it a higher rating. Maybe even. Um, like one of our highest ratings um, I just felt that it's such a the, the storyline is so delinear and also they tr- the filmmaker is deliberately trying to trick you into what things you should take most stock in and what things are sort of trivial um, and 
and because of that sometimes you're, you're watching the film and you're confused and you're not going with it 100% of the way you yeah. kind of have to click into a mode about halfway the, through the film where you're saying right this is a thriller film I'm not watching this for the plot I'm watching this because I want to be awed and inspired and scared by the action sequences um, if I'd gone into the film a second time knowing that I would have been able to pick up more of the plot and I would have been able to enjoy the action sequences from the start so 7.5, great film. Mm, brilliant. Well, our um, our final film of the London Film Festival um, was Dream Away. Now, this is part of the official documentary selection for the BFI Film Festival. Um, as me and Will said at the beginning, we're not sure if it's one. We know that one of the documentaries in this selection will be awarded um, with, like, best picture or whatever. Um, will, do you want to... I mean, I don't really know how to explain this film. It's so incredibly <laughs> surreal. And I thought I thought we'd seen it all with Aquarella, mate, in terms of how strange documentaries can get. But this is this is something else, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I, I've got actually a very good... Um, I found a, a fantastic review that sums up the plot um, Go fantastically. On yeah, hit, hit, hit us with that. Um, okay. It hasn't been so very long since rich tourists from around the world came to stay in the luxury luxury hotels of Sharm el-Sheikh, but the Arab Spring and the confusion of post-revolutionary period quickly robbed the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula of its charm as a, as a go-to summer resort. Saturated with the elements of surreal fiction, the documentary takes us to a shimmering city of ghosts to visit its last inhabitants, resort employees who feverishly dream among the abandoned hotel suites. Yeah, that's quite a good description. Yeah, I think it, I think it's pretty bang on. I think um, I think that basically you go there's a it follows the lives of around about six or seven of the people who work in the hotel, um, in in the housekeeper facility, um, in t- in that kind of all inclusive resort where people are like entertainers and activity people, where they clap along to songs. Yeah, like the and, recreation team. Yeah, exactly. Um, you've got a driver, you've got a DJ, you've got a masseur. Um, you've you've got an entertainer who is one of those statue people that you might see in like Leicester Square or like with a, all the like, paint all the paint over their bodies like exactly black and gold paint. Um, and you follow all these people um, living their lives at the hotel, except you follow all these people acting out their lives at the hotel. It yeah. kind of feels like a bizarre twist on the only way is Essex slash Made in Chelsea, where. The act that where they are acting out their real lives, but they are acting out dialogued real lives. Yeah, so like everything the... is really happening, but it's it's such a mix between acting to the camera and then also acting internally that it's very difficult to decipher which is the... what's true and what's false. Yeah, this is this is a non-fiction. Sorry, this is a a non-fiction documentary um, presented through a series of kind of biased lenses in many ways. So it's yes. kind of like um, you you a lot of this film is kind of just fly on the wall the camera team will have been filming the interactions between the different people involved in the movie so like the housekeeping people that live with each other in one of the rooms or like the friends between the different teams of people that work at the resort um so some of it will literally just be watching their kind of like day-to-day their conversations or them going out for a drink and stuff like that but then other moments it's almost as if the people they were following were told, right, we want you to speak your truth. Um, like, don't just tell us about what your life's like. 
like tell us kind of speak to the camera and convey how you feel about your situation mm-hmm. and that's that's not like a classic docudrama kind of thing where like someone will be sitting there being like i feel like x y and z this is very abstract like you'll have moments where you'll be watching a conversation between two of the hotel staff and then the conversation will die down and one of them will just look at the camera and almost break the fourth wall in a way by like looking right at you and like performing a poem that they've written about their mm. experience it's it's almost like they are they are um performing right to you um and it, like there's a moment where there's a girl in a taxi on her way back from kind of spending some time with her friends and all of that was completely fly on the wall and real and then in the taxi on the way back she kind of goes from looking out the window to looking at the camera and like just talking um but like in a it's clearly like a rehearsed thing it's like this isn't just them saying something in the moment this is like something that they thought about and prepared and they're told right when we get into the taxi whenever you feel comfortable look at the camera and do that do you know what i mean yeah um which which i think i I, I don't know. I think it, it, it makes it very interesting. Um, it, 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 it's kind of creepy in, in in some ways. It's kind of austere. Like they all, all of the characters, each of them individually have like a series of scenes where they walk along the road following um, a truck which has like a giant inflatable black monkey on it. And the black monkey has like a microphone or a speaker attached to it. And very clearly it's someone in the car who's like speaking and pretending it's the monkey's voice. But all of the kind of hotel staff that the the documentary follows at one point or another will have like an interaction with this monkey. And it almost like it almost plays out like the monkey speaking to them is like the director having another way to connect with the subject matter and the, the lives of the staff mm. um but it is it, it's, oh, it's very surreal very yeah very it's weird. very surreal and the monkey kind of tells the actors what to do and what they're doing wrong and are they going to follow me forever and i always i kind of look at it as these guys are dreamers of dreaming of a better life of dreaming of better pain etc and i kind of see the film as a kind of way that they're kind of acting as mini celebrities in this kind of film and they're kind of trying to by the nature the of the camera. film exactly they're playing act to the camera to escape to get out of the dream um which i find is a, a really interesting um way of doing it um the story itself is really interesting the fact that i mean um when when we um watched the film and then came out the cinema um we had we both thought that there was sort of no guests at all. Um, there was maybe one scene where there was, couple, there was a couple of guests on a sunbed. But otherwise, there's literally no one in this hotel. And it's so scary and surreal that, they, that the lives go on as normal. And the pay, even though it's docked, it's not like, pe- it's not like it just closes. It's still there. It's still people are getting paid for it. And it's just a it's very, very interesting subject matter. Um, um, of of yeah, I also quite liked the subject matter of um, when, especially in the bar scene that you were talking to uh, talking about, of sort of how women are treated in Iraq, and um, and the and the difference between you know it's not Iraq, is it? It's um, Sharm El Sheikh. 
Yeah, no, this is Egypt, Will. Egypt, yep, I meant Egypt. I said Iraq. <laughs> slight, it, slight difference. Do you know why I said Iraq? Because of the march. Because I was because from uh, early yeah, on. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, Sharm El, the difference, especially between how women act in Sharm El Sheikh, sort of the holiday capital, and how women act in Egypt, and how everyone acts in the in the in the distinction between the two. It's kind of like Sharm El Sheikh is an escape, but it's a, yeah, it's and it's an escape from the hustle and bustle and scariness of and maybe and maybe poverty of Egypt but also Sharm El Sheikh is a sort of escape into this very odd dream world where no one is there and you only sort of see your co-workers and there's just so many choices of bars but they're all empty um the tourist tourism's not there it's a really interesting look at sort of sort of the idea of a, of a resort town um if yeah. the resort town is dead I think it's it, it's also as well for some of these like these people it's it's almost like they're going two steps forward and one step back so like exactly. for, for for the women who work at the hotel for example whether it's housekeeping or recreational team or whatever they're allowed to kind of to a degree wear what they want in their free time express themselves it's a fairly relaxed part of Egypt um where they can go out and drink they can smoke they can you know associate with whoever they want um so in one way i suppose for the women that work at this like deserted hotel it's like they've kind of they've liberated themselves and they're kind of getting to experience things they've never experienced before but then on the other hand they're also kind of not really getting anywhere by going to work for a place where the pay is kind of slowly but surely being cut and they wake up every morning to do a 10 minute fitness dance to a swimming pool that has no guests in it I know it's I know. um it's really weird it's really really weird it is a very 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 odd film um but I kind of liked I kind of liked that I think sometimes I got lost especially in terms of like what the point of the film was I think I got it at the end I think I got the idea of sort of the, the dreaming away etc but sort of you get thrown so many surreal elements at once um that it kind of becomes, it kind of becomes like what is real and what is not, and you feel I I felt my, found myself feeling kind of uncomfortable with what is happening, um, especially the first bit of the film. I was like, is this a documentary? Is this not a documentary? Um, and it tricks you. Uh, I think the end effect of that tricking you between the idea of a sort of semi semi real documentary, but also an acted out documentary, it works out really well at the end. But I think a lot of the times throughout the film, you're just, you're, I don't know about you, but I was just like, what? What's happening yeah, now? There's yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it does feel quite disconnected throughout the film. Um, but I also, one thing I struggled with was I kind of either wanted it to be really magical and surreal and, and, and fictional, or I wanted it to just be a by-the-numbers, non-fictional look at the lives of these people. Yeah. I think when it blurred the two... I, while it made for quite interesting watching, I found it hard to understand what to believe and what was bullshit. And I've left it not really knowing if that film is representative of what it's actually like for hundreds and thousands of people working in Sharm El Sheikh yep. or whether it's just them sensationalising their own experience. Yeah, in, yeah I can't, I, because this film is quite a low-key thing. I haven't been able to really understand the politics behind it. I've been trying to Google things and I haven't been able to find it. But, um, I, yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't know if this is up for the cameras. I don't know if 
actually there's it, actually it's just a fairly non-busy hotel as opposed to an almost empty hotel yeah yeah it'd be interesting to find out um what do would you, you what how all right two two quick questions um how would you compare it to our experience of watching Aquarella, another documentary at the film festival, of which I was kind of really struggling to give a rating? And then what would you rate this film? I would rate it probably... Well, you remember that I gave Aquarella a three um, last time, I saw, um, last episode. Um, so I, I think it's a lot better than Aquarella. I think I understand the nature that Aquarella and Dream Away do two very different things. Um, one has got no dialogue. This has got a lot of acted, very acted, deliberately dialogue. Um, I th both are very surreal, yet they're surreal in different ways. One is showing real experiences and making them surreal. The other one is creating fake experiences and they're surreal in that way. Um, I think it's it's hard to compare them but at the same time, I think that, um, I think that Dream Away manages to negotiate its subject matter in a way where Aquarela never did. Aquarela is an arty film where you, it's not got a point. You make the point what you will of it, and they just show you images and they show you things, and it's like they show you everything. And then you have to come away and ha and decide what you are thinking about this. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas Dream Away definitely has much more of an agenda behind it. And maybe I like agenda filmmaking. Maybe I like films that have got some kind of political point or emotional point or societal point. Um, it's why, why I like Michael Moore's stuff, etc. Um, but... I and I, I what I what I found Aquarela of devoid of was emotion, and I found that this film, although surreal, did touch me in ways. There was moments yeah. with the cast that I was really touched by their stories, um, whereas I found Aquarela quite cold. In terms of rating, I would give this film a six. I think. Okay. I think I really enjoyed it. I think I thought it was a very ambitious project. I thought the cinematography was wonderful and the music was very, very good. I liked the surreal elements of it. I think sometimes the film became lost in translation and difficult to watch. Um, and I do, and sometimes I, 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 as you said, I was like, do I want to know the full story of this documentary? Because it's sort of teased from you the whole way. Or do I want to go full surreal documentary? I yeah I get you I think for me um, I'd, I'd give it a 5 out of 10 I think it's definitely more accessible and more emotional um, and more for you to kind of grapple with as a, as a viewer than Aquarella um, but for me I while it's fascinating I found it maybe equal parts um, interesting to equal parts frustrating mm -hmm. um, I, I think that it's um it's got a very flawed narrative structure for me. Um, I think that I could have come out of that film had it swung either fully into magic or, or fully into documentary. I could have come out of that film feeling like I either really understood how difficult it is for people living in Sharm El Sheikh if it went the documentary way and the truth of it. Or I could have come out of it thinking, wow, that was a really mysterious, strange headfuck of a film. I think coming out of this, I kind of just felt a little bit like I didn't really know where I lied with it. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't to its detriment, but that wasn't also to its kind of support. 
yeah. yeah. Five out of five out of ten. Five but out of ten. that is it, mate. London Film Festival complete for another year. Maybe next year we will have enough clout to go there and get like full on press passes and maybe chat to celebrities. Imagine if we could look back at these two episodes and be like, what amateurs? <laughs> I mean, I think that about most episodes, but yeah. <laughs> well, um, um, yeah, no, so that is that is it though, isn't it? That's the film festival done. So we are mm-hmm. back to our reg- regularly scheduled programming next week. Indeed. Um, there are a lot of good films at the moment. We've spoken... Oh, we've there's spoken... so many good films that it's so difficult to see them all. No, we, we, we've spoken at length about wanting to see First Man and Bad Times at the El Royale. It's looking unlikely now, going into next week, that we will be reviewing Bad Times at the El Royale, sadly. Mm. Um, but the three films that we've got to focus on in the next week, um, maybe we'll try and get out a review next week for all three of them, or maybe we'll just end up picking two of them. But we've got First Man that is still out and we still need to go and see uh, it's been getting really good reviews but it's been doing really poorly at the box office probably because it you know it, it probably is a bit boring let's be real um, we've also got Halloween the Halloween remake that's just come out which has got Jamie Lee Curtis reprising her role and the you know the iconic Michael Myers villain with the uh, plain and simple but incredibly haunting mask uh, which I really want to see, but I haven't seen the original Halloween, so I think maybe we should try and do a bit of a binge of them before we watch it. Um, and then we've also got Bohemian Rhapsody, which comes out on Wednesday next week, in a few days' time, the Rami Malek uh, version of the Freddie Mercury movie. Let's be real, it's not really going to be about the rest of the members of Queen, is it? No. Um, I think that no matter what... Rami Malek does and I think he'll do a damn good job based on the trailers everyone will be divided on that film because everyone has such a different opinion of what the film should be doing and also their opinions of what they they meant as a band and he meant as a person in popular culture mm-hmm. um, so it's going to be an interesting one to talk about yep. and, maybe, but, um, and maybe when um, we have a wind, a wind down in ex- exciting um, films that we need we all need to review at this one moment we can then go back to Bad Times the El Royale like we did for um, You Were Never Really Here uh, yeah, because I, it's a film that I would love to love to review but yeah we just we, there's just so many good films yeah it's tough it's tough Indeed. and we're also I mean in five weeks time mate we're going to be halfway through the 52 week film project I think we need to do some kind of party celebration we need to look back at what we've reviewed in the first well the first six months of us doing this podcast fucking maybe hell, man, maybe go months. back and find our favorite moments of us yeah, two together we'll yeah we'll, we'll find some old clips and stitch them together yeah um <laughs> but as always big thank you to everyone who's listening out there please give it a like and subscribe uh, drop it a review on itunes we've been getting some really great reviews coming in recently yeah thank you uh, all so means, much that means a lot um and we will see you next week bye